0: Good evening, on this first real day of spring. My name is Anne margaret Daniel. I'm a lecturer in the English and currently history departments. How many poets like their critics? I feel perfectly safe in saying very few, if any. Well, I know one who does. Last summer, I was lucky enough to be teaching at the Yates International Summer School in Sligo, Ireland. Helen Vendler was lecturing one misty Tuesday morning in the Hawkswell Theatre on Yeats' Easter 1916, among other poems. The lecture was elegant, and when it ended, the large crowd began dispersing through the lobby at the back of the theatre. No one noticed at first a man who had come out and taken up a place in the very back against the windows. He was silhouetted against them in, in the weak, sort of striving Irish sunlight Uh, With tumbled iron gray and white hair, wide shoulders and a dark tweed jacket, it was a moment or two before I recognized Seamus Heaney. It surprised me to see him there. He was not meant to be appearing at the school last summer, lecturing or reading, which he's done only a few times since winning his uh, Nobel Prize. Well, he was there to meet his friend and critic, Helen Vendler, He beamed when he saw her coming out of the lecture hall and spirited her away in the general direction of Hargadon's pub, it being lunchtime. The sight of these two colleagues walking away down a wet Irish lane with the wet rooftops of Sligo and the head of the great mountain, Ben Bulban, just showing through the mist above them, was a sight to see. Very few poets like their critics. But in the case of Helen Vendler, we have the critic as artist And were Walt Whitman alive today, that old singer of songs, that old New Jersey boy, would have come up from Camden tonight, and he would be standing at the back of Makash 50 after tonight's lecture concludes, his white hair and his white beard floating, his broad-brimmed hat in his hand, waiting to take Helen Vendler out for supper. Ladies and gentlemen, it is a pleasure and an absolute honor to introduce Helen Vendler, the A. Kingsley Porter Professor of Harvard University, author of books including The Odes of John Keats, The Art of Shakespeare Sonnets, and Seamus Heaney, who will be speaking tonight on Walt Whitman and the Reader in Futurity, Intimacy with the Longed-For camarado, Professor Fender.
1: These talks, as I said last night, are about invisible listeners, the creation of invisible listeners to the poet's voice by the poet, and the creation of a kind of intimacy between the poet and his invisible listener. The three examples I have taken are George Herbert, whose invisible listener is God, that was last night, tonight, Walt Whitman and the reader in Futurity. And tomorrow night, John Ashbery speaking to Francesco Parmigianino across 400 years, speaking to the artist in the past. I want to trace tonight the many entities, visible and then invisible, to which Walt Whitman extends an address of intimacy, suggesting how and why he changes addressees over time. Whitman certainly began not as a poet interested in the invisible at all, but rather as a poet of strong bodily response, expressed in the language of physicality. In the 1855 Leaves of Grass, he invents a poem, a poetry of far-reaching symbolic resource in its description of the conjunction of bodies, as in his startlingly original rendition of oral intercourse. What is this flooding me, childhood or manhood, and the hunger that crosses the bridge between? The cloth laps a first sweet eating and drinking, laps life-swelling yolks, laps ear of rose corn, milky and just ripened. The white teeth stay and the boss tooth advances in darkness, and liquor is spilled on lips and bosoms by touching glasses and the best liquor afterward. It was his early intimacies with other bodies that made possible for Whitman that pronominal intimacy so intoxicating to lovers as he revels in the first-person plural, we, that releases the self from its physical loneliness. In Whitman, bodily intimacy appears in the We two of the 1860 Enfant d'Adam and the Calamus poems as he joins another to become We Two Boys Together Clinging on the open road, or more powerfully, the we two who, when together, equal the whole created universe. We are nature, says the poet of himself and his lover, as they undergo in their companionship multiple metamorphoses, inanimate and animate. We become plants, plants, trunks, foliage, roots, bark. We are bedded in the ground. We are rocks. We prowl, fanged, and four-footed in the woods. We spring on prey. We are two clouds, forenoons and afternoons, driving overhead. We are seas mingling. We are two of those cheerful waves rolling over each other and interwetting each other. We are what the atmosphere is, transparent, receptive, pervious, impervious. We have circled and circled till we have arrived home again, we too, we have voided all but freedom and all but our own joy. This companionate intimacy is so necessary that without it, as another calamus poem tells us, the poet fears he would not be able to write at all. Without it, I saw in Louisiana a live oak growing, all alone stood it and the moss hung down from the branches. Without any companion it grew there, uttering joyous leaves of dark green. And its look, rude, unbending, lusty, made me think of myself. But I wondered how it could utter joyous leaves, standing alone there, without its friend near. For I knew I could not. Whitman becomes a poet of intimacy with the invisible only after the physical fails him. Sometimes unable to find and always unable to sustain actual sexual intimacy, Whitman is driven to invent a more satisfactory intimacy with the unseen. The poet is plunged towards the lover in futurity by the faithlessness of the lover in the present. The heartbreak generating an invisible lover to replace the visible one can be seen most clearly in the 1860 lyric, Hours Continuing Long, a poem suppressed by Whitman from all subsequent editions of Leaves of Grass. Forsaken by his actual lover, the speaker, distracted and ashamed, withdraws to a lonesome and unfrequented spot, seating myself, leaning my face in my hands. In these sullen and suffering hours, he wonders if other men have the like hours out of the like feelings. As his misery seeks company, he reduces the number of men who may resemble him to a single one. Is there even one other like me, distracted, his friend, his lover, lost to him? And that other conjectured man, also a forsaken lover, is then made into a reader of Whitman's own poem. Does he see himself reflected in me? In these hours, does he see the face of his hours reflected? Two forms of intimacy are conjured up here a subjective psychological one, himself reflected in me, and a more objective representational one, in these hours does he see the face of his hours reflected. Whitman is not yet addressing this imagined other who might not only resemble him but become his reader, nor is he yet projecting this alter ego into a far off future. The hope of finding an actual lover permeating the 1855 leaves of grass still lingers in the 1860 edition. Yet between those two editions in 1857, Whitman wrote a poem called by its first line, Full of Life Now, in which he admits with resignation that the reader in futurity is the most likely lover he will have. He contrasts himself, full of life now, compact, visible, with the reader in futurity who will, at that time, be the one who will be compact, visible. On the supposition that two things equal to the same thing, being compact, visible, are equal to each other, the poet can construct an identity exchange within a topological temporality in which past, present, and future tenses intermix and indicative, subjunctive, and jussive moods intertwine. The original reading, the poem originally began, full of affection. Full of affection, the original reading, the poet speaks, imagining that his poems, after his death, continue to seek an envisaged comrade of the future, who is in turn seeking them. Full of life now, compact, visible, I, forty years old, the eighty-third year of the states, to one a century hence, or any number of centuries hence, to you yet unborn, these, seeking you. When you read these, I that was visible and become invisible, now it is you, compact, visible, realizing my poems, seeking me, fancying how happy you were if I could be with you and become your comrade. Be it as if I were with you. Be not too certain, but I am now with you. The cost to the poet of finding an actual visible lover is the rendering here of himself invisible. He becomes a ghost so that the camarado can become real. Although Full of Life Now is a poem of cunningly devised theory, more than of personal warmth, it bears three of the unmistakable marks of Whitmanian intimacy with the invisible. The poet's direct address to an unknown person, when you read these, the poet's capacity to intuit his reader's thoughts, you seeking me, fancying how happy you were if I could be with you, and a faith in the mysterious power of poetic language to convey presence, be not too certain, but I am now with you, the latter preceded by the ordaining power of the shaman be as if it be it as if I were with you, yearning towards someone who may not be born for some years or even hundreds of years hence. As is, as we have seen from the examples of Hopkins and Dickinson, a feeling not uncommon in lyric, but Whitman carries it further than any poet before or since. The problem is to give such a future lover tangible materiality, and we will see Whitman experimenting with this task in many of the leaves of grass. Among the causes of Whitman's invention of a comrade in futurity, one was, as I have said, Whitman's own love disappointments in life and his fear that without such companionship he would cease to write. But other things played a part in drawing his eyes to the future. His messianic tendencies, his belief in scientific and evolutionary progress, Whitmanian intimacy with the invisible, because it is so overdetermined, takes on many tonalities. A forsaken lover speaking to an ideal lover yet to appear does not use the same tone as a messiah speaking to his future followers or a teacher to pupils as yet unborn. One of the roughs speaking from the open road to an envisaged camarado takes yet another tone. The fluid Whitmanian self becomes, when oriented to the future, unusually expansive and porous. And one of the attractions of Whitman's intimacy with the invisible is the discovery of the many Whitmans it brings forth. I am large. I contain multitudes. I resist anything better than my own diversity, as he said. Whitman had begun his, ca- his career as a writer, as a balladeer and populist exhorter of others, but as he turned his gaze inward and dev- devised his true material, discovered his true material, himself and his relation to the world into language, he had to decide what tone to give his self-exposures, as he said, in a passage that Henry James objected to, "I expose," although he continued to resort often enough to either the homiletic tone of the preacher or the rhetorical tone of the orator. His genius was to prefer to these more public modes of the pulpit and the rostrum, a private tone, more suited to the seclusion of an intimate space. From this space, he addresses his invisible reader. This are, I tell things in confidence. I might not tell everybody, but I will tell you. The, The poet's unseen confidant becomes one of an elect group a group capable of infinite growth in numbers as confidant after confidant is drawn to the poet. After an epic extension of self in various human sympathies, I am the man, I suffered, I was there, the poet of song of myself has proved himself worthy to teach others, and his tone becomes that of a teacher addressing a core of pupils, male and female, for whom he again resorts to a word in French. Eleve, I salute you. I see the approach of your numberless gangs. I see you understand yourselves and me. My steps drag behind yours, yet go before them. I launch all men and women forward with me into the unknown. The foreign word élève suggests that the poet maître differs from other teachers his élèves may have encountered. He is, so to speak, foreign to their previous experience with education. His aim is not the schoolmaster's lecture, nor the philanthropist's public act, but something more private, something closer to a blood transfusion or an infusion of semen. Behold, I do not give lectures or a little charity. What I give, I give out of myself. If we are for a moment tempted to assimilate this speaker because of his diction, behold, I give, to the Jesus of the Gospels, we are brought up short by the violent colloquial intimacy of the lines immediately following, addressed as if by a drill sergeant to the imperfect listener in futurity. You there, impotent, loosen the knees, open your scarf chops till I blow grit within you, spread your palms and lift the flaps of your pockets. Such a passage reveals the length to which Whitman will go to attach bodily materiality to his unseen auditors. Nor are his means of conveying materiality always drawn like these from human appearance and vesture. Drawing on his past as a carpenter, Whitman turns his reader and himself, astonishingly, into two lengths of wood in order to express his wish for identity with his reader. I would fetch you, whoever you are, flush with myself. Given the diversity of that myself, the flush position of the reader must be continually readjusted. We've seen Whitman turn from the real lover to the invisible one, from an indifferent contemporary audience to disciples to come, from an absence of pupils in the present. Actually, he had been fired from his job, for he was teaching pupils in Long Island, so. From an absence of pupils in the present to a live as yet unborn. And we have proposed that the greatest literary problem in such a turn is to give physical reality to the invisible companion. In his 1855 Leaves of Grass, Whitman sometimes confers such reality by making his setting an actual physical scene in which an invitation is extended which presumes an identification, physical or mental, of one adventurous camarada with another. Two adults promised to mutual help and imagined as existing in a common present are to set off on the open road to see the world and reach God. Our rendezvous is fitly appointed. God will be there and wait till we come. My left hand hooks you round the waist. My right hand points to landscapes of continents and a plain public road. Shoulder your duds and I will mine and let us hasten forth. Wonderful cities and free nations we shall fetch as we go. If you tire, give me both burdens and rest the chuff of your hand on my hip. And in due time, you shall repay the same service to me for after we start, we never lie by again. The marks of physical mutuality here, the bodily contact, sorry, the bodily contact, the reciprocity of physical gestures given and received, the duds, and the promise of first-person plural perpetuity on the open road, appear throughout Song of Myself, as does the scene of one person confiding in another. Towards the end of the poem, the departing poet calls out with some anxiety several times, asking for a reciprocal speech of confidence from his pupil. Listener up there, hear you, what have you to confide in me? Talk honestly, for no one else hears you, and I stay only a minute longer. Who wishes to talk with me? Will you speak before I am gone? Will you prove already too late? The reassurance that lies in intimate talk between friends or lovers is one of the seductive appeals of the envisioned mutuality in Song of Myself. And although Whitman calls his pupil, you listener up there, that listener may be either invisible to the poet in the poet's present or waiting for the poet in the future, It isn't specified. After the departure into air of the spirit of the magnificently imagined speaker at the end of Song of Myself, the promised intimacy of mutual talk must vanish too. The dead body of the poet returns to the American version, dirt, of the Adamic dust from which he came and becomes part of the native soil. The former intimacy of touch reproduces itself, but now in the touch of boot soles to dirt. I bequeath myself to the dirt to go grow from the grass I love. If you want me again, look for me under your boot soles. Dissatisfied, however, with an intimacy that is barred from actual touch by a membrane of shoe leather, Whitman imagines himself growing from the grass in the form of food and drink, the usual harvest, to become his reader's very flesh by becoming his meat and drink. You will hardly know who I am or what I mean, but I shall be good health to you nevertheless and filter and fiber your blood. This extraordinary promise mimics the intimacy of the Eucharist in which a divine spirit creeps by way of physical nourishment into the heart's blood. And if his reader has not yet found the poet, he must imitate the Christian pilgrim and search out his invisible friend. Whitman closes Song of Myself with one last promise, not unlike the promises of Jesus to his disciples before the ascent into heaven. Failing to fetch me at first, keep encouraged, Missing me one place, search another. I stop somewhere waiting for you. Whitman, who had long been waiting in loneliness for an actual camarado to find him on the earth, now places himself on the road ahead of the camarado of the future, waiting for the pilgrim to seek him out and catch up to him. As Whitman had said earlier, my steps drag behind yours, yet go before them. Whitman's most original search through the grammar of intimacy with the invisible human beings that he cannot see is pursued in the great poem now called by its 1871 name, The Sleepers. It was originally the fourth poem of the untitled 12 in the original Leaves of Grass. It was named Night Poem in 1856 when Whitman gave titles to the 1855 poems. And in 1860, he gave it its most accurate title, Sleep Chasings, the sleepers is the name of its matter. Sleep chasings, the name of its manner. Whitman explores here the many possibilities of invisible intimacy that occurred to him. The first is the intimacy gained through a poet's insight into the lives of others. This gift generates the poet's fantasy of sleeping and dreaming in the company of all the selves of the earth. The sleepers are unaware of the poet's presence as he enters their very beds. I go from bedside to bedside. I sleep close with the other sleepers, each in turn. I dream in my dream all the dreams of the other dreamers, and I become the other dreamers. However great the imagined intimacy may be of this stealthy insinuation of self into the dreams of others, there can be in such a fantasy with unconscious others no mutuality or reciprocity. And so Whitman invents a crowd of aerial companions, very much awake, unlike the sleepers, with whom he can disport himself. These nimble ghosts, as he calls them, play hide-and-seek with him, cash and cash again, from the French cash-cash, in three elemental realms, ground, sea, and air. These genii loci are hidden from normal perception, but not from the poet. From me they can hide nothing and would not if they could. His intimacy with them is fitful but mutual. He is their boss, he says, but they make him their pet besides, as they in turn assume authority over him. These equivocal spirits run ahead of him, for him and him alone lifting their cunning covers in a gesture of ultimate intimacy. Well do they do their jobs, these journeymen divine. Only from me can they hide nothing and would not if they could. I reckon I am their boss and they make me a pet besides and surround me and lead me and run ahead when I walk and lift their cunning covers and signify me with stretched arms and resume the way. Onward we move a gay gang of blackguards with mirth-shouting music and wild-flapping pennants of joy. In this extraordinary moment of bliss, we see a group intimacy, achievable only with a gang of celestial doubles, a revision to maleness of the muses surrounding the the Apollo, the patron of poets. This mutuality is plural rather than dyadic and includes not only varied role playing, being a boss at the same time as being a pet, but also the playfulness of hide and seek and the joys of outlawry and music. Uh, This is the passage that Hopkins imitated in that nature is a Heraclitean fire and of the comfort of the resurrection. Whitman's gay gangs uh, turn into the clouds in Hopkins that, that are called heaven roisterers, in gay gangs they throng, they glitter in marches. Within the sleepers, the fantastic gay parade in the sky cannot last any more than can the invasion of the beds of sleeping others. Leaving behind that group intimacy with fantasized companions as he has left behind the hope of an actual lover, the poet concedes that in the end, the dark of imagination is a better lover than any ordinary man. He takes on the mask of a woman in order to express dissatisfaction with physical intercourse with a male lover. Darkness, says, he says in the persona of the woman, darkness, you are gentler than my lover. His flesh was sweaty and panting. I feel the hot moisture yet that he left me. The poet's sleep chasings end with no male lover inside at all, singular or plural, real or invisible the speaker, now solitary, having either lost or rejected male companions, finds the darkness to be not a lover or comrade, but rather his mother, as the erotic is sublimated and obliterated in the regression to the nocturnal womb, scene of symbiotic intimacy. The invisible addressee of the sleepers is now the all-embracing mother. Sleep, the all-embracing mother, sleep, guaranteeing a dawn rebirth of the poet. I will duly pass the day, O my mother, and duly return to you. Not the womb yields the babe in its time more surely than I shall be yielded from you in my time. In The Sleepers, Whitman is still comparing the intimacy with actual human beings that he seeks and has occasionally found with transcendent intimacies of various sorts, the plural intimacy with the idyllic journeyman divine, who never again, alas, return in Whitman's work. They flash through like a meteor and are gone. The plural intimacy with the idyllic journeyman divine, these are the transcendent intimacies, the imaginative intimacy with the dark, which is preferable to the earthly lover, and the primal intimacy with the all-encompassing mother, the dark, the night. The Sleepers, in its gentle voyeurism, is Whitman's ultimate attempt at union with living beings in the present, but the attempt is not wholly trusted, as the departures into transcendent intimacies reveal. And physical mutuality, though it is movingly represented among characters in the poem, seems not to be available to the speaker himself. He can view its utopian and reconciliatory form only in others, in Washington Embracing the Troops in the poet's mother sitting with the beautiful squaw, in the coupled sleepers. In no case, however, among the sleepers that he watches as they sleep, in no case, however, is physical closeness accompanied by intercourse, which, of course, sleep renders impossible, though it is somewhat neutralized, the closeness within the poem. The sleepers are very beautiful as they lie unclothed. The bare arm of the girl crosses the bare breast of her lover, They press close without lust, his lips press her neck. The father holds his grown or ungrown son in his arms with measureless love, and the son holds the father in his arms with measureless love. The white hair of the mother shines on the white wrist of the daughter. The breath of the boy goes with the breath of the man. Friend is inarmed by friend. The central Whitmanian sign of reciprocity, the repetition of identical words to show body adjoined to body, is openly in evidence here. Bear, bear, press, press, holds, holds, in his arms, in his arms, with measureless love, with measureless love, white, white, breath, breath, friend, friend. Not one of these human beings is intimately available to the solitary poet who can find closeness only with the knight, his mother. The Sleepers is Whitman's great yearning poem of the desire for intimacy and reciprocity in actual physical life as he envies those who seem as they sleep to possess it. It is only by relinquishing this material desire that he is able, enabled to write the greatest poem of his greatest poem of intimacy with the invisible reader in futurity, the 1856 Crossing Brooklyn Ferry, originally called Sundown Poem because it's a sunset poem. In it, in Crossing Brooklyn Ferry, Whitman confronts the difficulties posed to a writer who must create a physical materialization of the invisible. Whereas George Herbert was content to achieve tonalities of intimacy which sprang from a rendition of emotional desire and did not, indeed could not, concern himself with the bodily depiction of the invisible being with whom he entered into intimacy, Whitman, insisting that the body is the soul, had to find a way to confer on the reader in futurity a real body carrying out real actions. The living sleepers, unconscious, could be arranged by Whitman in the desired positions of mutual embrace, including those for which Whitman ached. But those immobile sleepers cannot be made to carry out any real actions and cannot therefore become imagined present-day physical companions for the poet himself. In a tremendous leap of imagination, seeking for future physical embodiments of himself, Whitman takes as his surrogates the ceaseless crowds of persons who will, in their day, take the Brooklyn Ferry as he is taking it now at the present sundown moment. He projects the crowds into a future space and time made credible, firm, and indubitable because it is scheduled by the beatifically certain routines of the ferry itself. And by, the, and by the divinely ordained daily setting of the sun unto the end of time if Whitman himself on the Brooklyn Ferry is real so then will be the invisible but predictable ferry passengers of the future now that there's no longer a Brooklyn Ferry I think they've restored it I think I read somewhere that they were restoring it to make the poem come true <laughs> I mean those schedules used to be inflexible at least Crossing Brooklyn Ferry allows its several marvelously scored intimacies of address to cohere and dissolve without authorial prefiguration. He doesn't tell you what he's going to do, he just does it. The you of the overture to the poem, the first strophe, is not a person at all, but an environment, as Whitman addresses the flood tide below and the sunset clouds above him. Then by the slip of a single letter, the clouds become crowds, the new generalized target of address. These crowds are those actually now surrounding Whitman on the ferry. Crowds of men and women attired in the usual costumes, how curious you are to me. Without any break, the crowds become identical ones of the future. I am with you, you men and women of a generation, or ever so many generations hence. It is at this point that Whitman begins to constitute, with tautologically repeated verbs in the parallel pattern, just as you, so I, that he begins to constitute by these repetitions the physical being of his future ferry passengers. Emphasizing that he himself many and many a time crossed the river, he guarantees by the iteration of his own action the iterability of the same action in the future, many and many a time. Whitman's most daring tactic in bringing his future surrogates into sensuous existence is to represent the future by the present tense and to represent his own current present by a continuous past. He crossed the river, he says, long ago, of old, but his surrogates are crossing it now. It is their actions that are present, vivid, visible, and immediate when anyone reads the poem. Just as you feel when you look on the river and sky, So I felt. Just as any of you is one of a living crowd, I was one of a crowd. Just as you are refreshed by the gladness of the river and the bright flow, I was repressed. This pattern in Just As You, So I, making the future the present and the present the past, is replaced by the patterned I, too, which introduces the neutral verbs saw and looked maintained throughout the rest of the third strophe. Against that syntactic constant, saw and looked, the all the objects looked on and seen become the variables, as the eye takes in sights of the air, the water and the landscape, sunlight, ships, foundry chimneys. Among all these sights, one is peculiarly striking. I, too," said the poet, says the poet in a dazzling line. I, too looked at the fine centrifugal spokes of light round the shape of my head in the sunlit water. This natural halo, recalling traditional iconographical representations of the sun or the aureoled head of a deity or saint, is composed of spokes of light raying out centrifugally from the poet's own head, as though they are thoughts issuing from his brain made visible by their reflection in the water. This transfiguring image alerts us to the degree to which Crossing Brooklyn Ferry is a poem celebrating without equivocation the divinity of man. Whitman continues in his fourth strophe to insist on the perfect equation of himself and his surrogates, but he leaves behind the U of a direct address to move to a more philosophical plane, referring to the future ferry passengers in the third person as others, as he had in his second strophe. The men and women I saw were all near to me, others the same, others who look back on me because I looked forward to them. The time will come though I stop here today and tonight. With that completed de- declaration of a wonderful mutuality, spanning time and space, joining the poet to those who look back on me because I look forward to them, Whitman surges forward, returning to the former form of direct address, I too, this time emphasizing, though now speaking posthumously, his own temporal and existential reality, both mental and physical. I too lived, Brooklyn of Ample Hills was mine. I too felt the curious, abrupt questioning stir within me. I too had received identity by my body. This proudly quiet self-epitaph is followed by its more philosophically complete formulation in which the past poet is shown to have been epistemologically aware of the body's foundational role in individual being. That I was, I knew was of my body, and what I should be, I knew I should be of my body. The you to whom Whitman's comforting I too is addressed now seems more singular, a camarado, than plural crowds, and this you is set against the rest of its fellow humans. It is not upon you alone the dark patches fall, the dark through its patches down upon me also. Nor is it you alone who know what it is to be evil. I am he who knew what it was to be evil. Lived the same life with the rest, the same old laughing, gnawing, sleeping. Whitman still separates himself here from his future surrogates by using distinct tenses, as we've seen for each. You know, I knew. But slowly in the seventh strophe, Whitman and his replacement on the ferry begin to inhabit the same tense, to experience a transcendent mode during which true intimacy can be achieved. The distinction of tenses is maintained at first, you have, I had. But with a query, the poet and his surrogate come conjecturally face-to-face in an indeterminate present tense now. Who knows, for all the distance, but I am as good as looking at you now for all that you cannot see me. The looking becomes the Whitmanian quasi-sexual transfusion of self, still voiced in the present tense, accomplished through the human mystery of mutual recognition between lovers and sexual intercourse, mimicked by the fluid fluidity of language as it transmits meaning. What is more subtle than this which ties me to the woman or man that looks in my face? which fuses me into you now and pours my meaning into you. This fantasy occasions the moment of greatest intimacy when the poet can use at last that first-person plural on which he so joyously rang changes in the physical poem We Too. In Brooklyn Ferry, we understand then, do we not In his subsequent exultant addresses to the sea and the light, the poet's halo is distributed to any and all who follow him on the ferry. Receive the summer sky, you water, and faithfully hold it till all downcast eyes have time to take it from you. Diverge, fine spokes of light from the shape of my head or anyone's head in the sunlit water. The ultimate dream of a physical surrogate who, following the template set down by the poet, performs identical bodily actions in the future, is relinquished in the transcendent but elegiac coda of crossing Brooklyn Ferry. In the coda, as in the overture, the plural you who are addressed are no longer persons, but rather aspects of the physical world. Whitman no longer imagines his companions, as in the sleepers, as spirits gambling in the sky, but rather as silent material phenomena. These constitute, he says, the necessary film which envelops the soul. They are the only means through which the soul can be known. The phenomena absorbed by the senses cannot forsake the poet, will never be unfaithful, are not items in a fantasy. They endure as the patient and undemanding support of all the poet's words. Whitman addresses them, those material phenomena, with the intimate tone of a lover. You have waited. You always wait. You dumb, beautiful ministers. We receive you with free sense at last and are insatiate henceforward. We fathom you not. We love you. There is perfection in you also you furnish your parts toward eternity. Great or small, you furnish your parts toward the soul. As we encounter in this praise of the earth's profferings the word eternity, we realize that it is only in an eternity imagined as ever-present that Whitman's intimate we can include both himself and his invisible fellow passengers to come. Brave as Whitman has been in conceiving the desired companion of the future as a physical being whose acts reiterate Whitman's own iterations, he can end crossing Brooklyn Ferry only outside human companionship, solitary among the earth's beautiful but silent appearances. By 1860, Whitman knows, as he says in a poem called Facing West from California's Shores, He knows that were he to search the whole world through to continue after he's crossed this continent onto others, he knows that were he to search the whole world through, he would not find the human mutuality he longed for, the very motive of his pilgrimage. Round the earth having wandered, now I face home again, very pleased and joyous. But where is what I started for so long ago, and why is it yet unfound? Balked of human company, Whitman feels, as at the close of the the sleepers, drawn towards intimacy with death. His leaves of grass are now perennial tomb leaves, springing anew each year. In scented herbage of my breast, the poet's intimacy with death is displaced at first onto an address to his own poems, the leaves, and their mysterious buried roots, an address which insensibly modulates into an address to death. He says to the leaves, "'You are often more bitter than I can bear. "'You burn and sting me. "'Yet you are beautiful to me, "'you faint-tinged roots. "'You make me think of death. "'Death is beautiful from you. "'What indeed is finally beautiful "'except death and love? "'Oh, I think it is not for life "'I am chanting here my chant of lovers. "'I think it must be for death. "'I am not sure, but the high soul of lovers "'welcomes death most.'" Indeed, O death, I think now these leaves mean precisely the same as you mean. Give me your tone, therefore, O death, that I may accord with it. How does a living poet come to know death well enough to be able to address it with such intimacy of tone? Whitman begins by assimilating death to companions already loved, those beautiful, dumb ministers of the earth, the phenomena that constitute his knowledge of life, of the body, and of himself. Their earthly being, he realizes, presupposes dissolution. Knowing them, then he already knows death, sufficiently to address it as the real reality. You, he says to death, hide in these shifting forms of life for reasons... And they are mainly for you. You beyond them come forth to remain the real reality. Behind the mask of materials, you patiently wait no matter how long. You will perhaps dissipate this entire show of appearance. Whitman's Darwinian notions of evolutionary progress reverse themselves here in devolution towards entropy, in which death undoes all forms, all appearances. Still addressing death, the poet concedes his whole universe to its finality of meaning as it stretches out to absorb all entities through all time, as far as he can see. Maybe you are what it is all for, but it does not last so very long. But you will last very long. Within Whitman's pre-war poetry, the primal wish for human intimacy, whether with the visible or the invisible, strives continually against this deathward drift drift towards intimacy with non-being. Whereas in the poem of the terrible doubt of appearances, the poet declares that all doubts about appearance and reality are curiously answered by my lovers, my dear friends. He a hold of my hand has completely satisfied me. This faith of the erotic idol is countered in every man, he also admits, by the sick, sick dread, lest the one he loved might secretly be indifferent to him. The terrible doubt of appearances can now undermine even the fantasy of the surrogate in futurity. Asking, are you the new person drawn towards me, Whitman warns the potential follower away, adding, have you no thought, O dreamer, that it may, o- may be all maya, illusion. The Manhattan that produces no lover can seem at such moments a hateful and hostile city even if the utopian dream following on such fear even if in the utopian dream following on such fear the poet envisages a different city one invincible to the attacks of the whole of the rest of the earth, the new city of friends, capital F. Driven away by the unsatisfactory fluctuations of actual erotic life Both the shuddering, longing ache of contact and its utopian prolongation recede. And Whitman the Lover declines into Whitman the Messianic Leader, deprecating his own arguments, similes, rhymes, and promising instead the progress of souls. Whoever denies me, it shall not trouble me. Whoever accepts me, he or she shall be blessed and shall bless me. I and my do not convince by arguments, similes, rhymes. We convince by our presence. Allons to that which was, is endless as it was beginningless. All parts away for the progress of souls. The plural imagined intimacies of 1855, 1856, and 1860 the intimacy with the lover, with the hoped-for friend camarado, with the sleepers and the nimble ghosts, with the invisible lover in futurity, with the dumb, beautiful ministers, and with obliterating death. All of those imagined intimacies are shocked into suspension when the reality of the Civil War suddenly demands representation. The devastating deaths of soldiers on the battlefields or in the hospitals begins to supersede for Whitman his own fantasized life on the open road, with the lover in futurity or the fantasized future crossings of others on the Brooklyn Ferry. Whitman's tones of intimacy do not, of course, lapse altogether, but they become discouraged. He apologizes to his camarado, for instance, in the poem, As I Lay With My Head on Your Lap, Camarado. He apologizes to his camarado for not having the least idea what is our destination or whether we shall be victorious or utterly quelled and defeated. New forms of intimate discourse arise for Whitman in the context of war, as in Vigil Strange I Kept on the Field One Night, but such a poem employs the conventional address of elegy, one already codified in the Western tradition by generations of lament. The solitary communion of the poet with death, forecast in the sleepers, widens into collective elegy in the carol sung to death at the end of When Lilacs Last in the Dooryard Bloomed. This is an address made not in the intimacy of two, but in the presence of the debris and debris of all the slain soldiers of the war. After the war, much in Whitman becomes retrospective as he reflects on himself as recorder of his era and mediator of its voices. We see him in 1880. He dies in 1891. We see him in 1880 presenting to us the pictures in his brain addressing us at first in the impersonal tones of the Cicerone of his picture gallery, The Tourist Guide. He is the interpreter to his invisible listeners in the future, not only of the memories stored in his mind, but also of himself as their expositor. In a little house, keep-by-pictures suspended, it is not a fixed house. It is round. It is only a few inches from one side to the other, Yet, behold, it has room for all the shows of the world, all memories. Here are the tableaus of life, and here the groupings of death. Here, do you know this? This is Cicerone himself. With finger raised, he points to the prodigal pictures. The physicality of Whitman's verse, self, is present to the last, here in the phrenological view of the human head, round a few inches from one side to the other, and in the unforeseen appearance of that staple of European museums, the third person Whitman surrogate, the Cicerone, made physical by his bodily finger and his bodily gesture. The sudden buttonholing intimacy of Whitman's second address to the reader, here, do you know this, brings us into a present simultaneous with that of the Cicerone instructing us, while the array of pictures, contemporaneous with the poet who made them, recede into the presented past of a bygone time elements in a museum. The relation of Cicero to a spectator is, however, hardly an intimate one, and Whitman's later longings for Camarado are wistful rather than urgent, as in the 1871 passage to India where the soul finds God and the aim attained as filled with friendship, love complete, the elder brother found, the younger belts in fondness in his arms." Elder and younger brother in Passage to India have no need to exchange words in this posthumous embrace. Language has no commerce with this heavenly sibling intimacy. And although at the close of Passage to India, Whitman turns, as he did at the end of Crossing Brooklyn Ferry, to address elements of the universe, the objects in view, by contrast to the crowds around him in their usual costumes, in the fairy poem, the objects in view are far distant, o oh sun and moon, and all you stars. Intimacy of language becomes lost in the end, when the poet feels he has, fears he has exhausted his store of expression, he had been weakened, as you know, by many strokes. He imagines that his ardent words have disintegrated into their atoms the separate leaden letters of type, of which they were compounded. Of course, as a former printer, he had constantly set type and then broken up type and then set it again for the next day. As Whitman, the erstwhile printer, three years before his death, looks at a font of type, he senses within the pallid slivers of lead a host of future unlaunched voices, ready to erupt in wrath or argument, praise, leer, or prayer, But besides supplying matter, the font of type, Whitman the poet reminds us, can generate manner. Not only single words, but also oceanic Whitmanian lines, by turns tumultuous and serene, slumber as yet unawakened within the type. A font of type, though it does not produce a poet of the future and address him as in the old manner, is nonetheless a poem of alchemical power in which the printer's leaden font names, nonpareil, brevia, bourgeois, long primer, are mined for and transformed into the gold of passionate voices. This latent mine, these unlaunched voices, passionate powers, wrath, argument, or praise, or comic leer, or prayer devout, not nonpareil, of bourgeois, long primer merely. These ocean waves, arousable to fury and to death. Or soothed to ease and sheeny sun and sleep within the pallid slivers slumbering. Whitman is still even at death's door, the poet of futurity, pointing out as Cicerone of the print shop the intimacies of human address, of wrath, of argument, of prayer. He senses slumbering in the cases of the temporarily distributed type until they are once more set in order by a human hand. Those voices slumber in him, too, still pressing for his articulating powers to join letter to letter and launch his soul into those speech acts that the type exists to embody. I think of this as an analogy to the poems he knew he wouldn't be able to write, but that he had within him. In the poem placed last in the deathbed edition of Leaves of Grass, we encounter, as we might have expected, an intimate address to the future, but it's directed neither to a human lover, nor to a future surrogate, nor to death. In it, Whitman turns to the classical hail and farewell, Awe we characteristically, of course, reversing it to the optimistic farewell and hail. To his own imagination, he addresses this to his own imagination, which, although it allows reminiscence, still ends with a look to the future. Goodbye and hail, my fancy. Yeats wrote that the last kiss is given to the void. But for Whitman, the last kiss is given to the future. By so powerfully imagining futurity into physical being, in a fairy passenger, in poems generated from type, in, in a mortal fancy, Whitman created an intimacy of address that embraced the body as much as the soul, that brought new eroticized and future oriented tonalities into poetic intimacy with the invisible. If we construct an image of an actual social world from Whitman's projected one, We would find it a world that ratifies and values all forms of attachment, whether of lovers, friends, siblings, teachers, and pupils, or wound dresses and the wounded. The projective imagination modeled for us by the poet would be the means to such social tolerance and empathetic cohesion. It is sometimes hard to remember, such as the intimacy of Whitman's tone, that he had no visible addressee in most of his poems. His effusions and transfusions and perfusions are so convincing on the page that we forget that they stream outward into the unknown, like those spokes of light around his illuminated face, like the filaments launched into its vacant vast surrounding by his noiseless patient spider. If his lyrics of social imagination triumph, it is because he so clearly saw the invisible ethics of intimacy as it ought to be and as in his vaulting imagination already was. Thank you.